Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. The Inuit Eskimos have 17 words for snow. I mean, one means fine powder, one is heavy, wet snow, there's hard, icy snow, there's loose snow, there's hard, packed snow, and on and on. 17 different words for what we know of only as snow. But then, on the other hand, the South Sea Islanders don't have a word for snow at all. And the Eskimos, they don't have a word for coconut. <laughs> Some languages are rich with precise and evocative vocabulary for this or that thing or quality, while others are downright poverty-stricken. German is famed for its precision. You know, you can string words together into one uh, and, and, oh, you add then prefixes and there are suffixes you can add until you have an impossibly long and unpronounceable word, a single word that embodies quite narrowly and explicitly an entire conceptual construct. It is, of course, half a page long. But you know exactly what it means. Now, English is not as precise, but we are constantly absorbing words from other languages, and that we, words that we give specialized meanings, with the result that English has four times as many words as any other language in the world. Most of it is stolen. Oh, I'm sorry, borrowed. Four times as many words. But in spite of the rich potential of our vocabulary, in practice, some of the most important areas of, the li of our lives are still word poor. You know, like love. I uh, glanced through the thesaurus and I found lots of synonyms. Adore, appreciate, cherish, adulate, hold dear, prize, treasure, be fond of, and on and on. But in that moment that your heart is pounding and your head is spinning with crazy hormones, or in that moment that you gingerly cradle that newborn infant, or in that moment you kiss the cheek of your dying mother. All you can think of is I love you. The word love says everything and it says nothing. We can love all kinds of things. 
I loved my mother. I love my wife, but not in the same way. You'll be relieved to hear that, I'm sure. I also love my dogs, but hopefully we all understand this does not imply that I think either my mother or my wife is a dog. Different thing. Nor are the dogs on the same level. I also love chili dogs, but that's not on the same level either. I love rock and roll. I love a mountain vista. I love a charming European village. I, I love God. What do we mean by the word love? Good luck. As I looked over those alphabetically arranged thesaurus entries, there stood out to me four groupings. One group of synonyms expressed the idea of enjoying things, the enjoyment of things. It can be enjoyment of people too, but it just, well, things like enjoy, fancy, relish, savor, take pleasure in. There's a second set that's like loving food or other delightful sensory experiences. And so a second set of synonyms like appreciate, be fond of, like, regard, respect, think the world of, expresses affectionate relations and friendship. A third set expresses something more intense, signaling someone's values and priorities, like cherish, desire, hold dear, prize, treasure. And a fourth group, adore, adulate, dote, idolize, worship. Well, when these are directed toward human beings, they begin to veer into something like a pathological obsession with the other person to the point of losing one's self-identity. And all of that under the one umbrella of love. Wow. We live in an age where social, cultural, and even linguistic boundaries are blurring. They're even breaking down to some, and to some extent altogether. <clears throat> We're being told that love is love. That is, that all forms of love are equal and are equally valid. That love we're told between two men is no different from the love between a man and a woman, and that any attraction one feels and deems to be love is legitimate. When all loves are equal, it can be used then to justify sexualizing not just romantic attraction, but any friendship, family, business relations. 
New Jersey, Rhode Island, France, Japan, Turkey, Israel have decriminalized incest. It's no longer illegal. Here in America, the Man-Boy Love Club, yes, it does exist, is beginning once more to lobby for pedophilia to be recognized as simply one more equally valid alternative form of love. Probably too little too late for the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts. But love is not love. As we would say, there's love and there's love. Just in our little list of thesaurus synonyms, there were at least four distinct kinds of love, very different, going from the shallow and banal on the one side to the disturbingly pathological on the other side. All loves are not equal. Unhealthy love, unhealthy love is rife in America where narcissism, obsession, dysfunction distort what love is into a grotesque character, caricature. Healthy love, healthy love requires that I have a clear and defined sense of who I am. I know who I am, pretty much. You know who you are, and we choose to form a friendship or, or a relationship without losing who I am or absorbing who you are. Unhealthy love begins with a deep neediness inside, a vacuum inside. What Paul Murnith calls a love, an empty love tank. You have this love vacuum inside. And then it confuses real love with, with a sense, of, a very tragic sense of unrelieved desire, an unfulfillable yearning, you know, that endless wanting what you can't have from someone who can't give it to you. You confuse that inner flutter of anxiety and, and uncertainty Yet confuse it with the titillating thrill of falling in love. That's a dysfunctional form of love. Or we confuse the compassion of love with what's really codependent enabling. You know, the irresistible urge to run out and save folks from everything, whether they want saving or not. You, I'm going to save you. Well, I don't want to be saved. Well, I'm going to save you, but I don't need to be saved. Well, I'm going to save you whether you like it or not, and I'm going to make you want it. I'm going to make you like it. Or maybe love, we see love as something we have to compete for, something we have to coerce or cajole from others. Love becomes a form of manipulation. All of these are marks of very unhealthy relationships. But that is precisely the kind of quote-unquote love celebrated in our pop music. Going all the way back into the 40s, hate to tell you that. 
Can't go back to the oldie goldies. They're not much healthier. And there's few things that, is, that are emotionally unhealthy or sicker than, I hate to say it, Beatles songs. That's the kind of love we celebrate in our pop music. That's the kind of so-called love that's played out in celebrity romances. Some of which have even lasted, they tell me, 72 days. (laughs) Who's counting? That's what our children see and are encouraged to emulate. America is lovesick with the emphasis on sick. What is love? Where do we find it and what does it look look like? The Hebrew language has four words for love. Dode, D-O-D, dode, is sexual love, sensual desire, whether that's marital relations all the way just to prostitution. It appears eight times in the Hebrew Bible, mostly in the Song of Songs. Are we surprised? The second word refer is sort of like our my love when you speak of someone as my love. Well, the second one is specifically refers to a man's female a wife or a female lover. My love, raya. R-A-Y-A-H, Raya. It shows up nine times, all of them, in the Song of Songs. Now, in case you have not read the Song of Songs, I think you can tell just from that, it's mostly about love and sex. It is. Third, there is the verb to love. Aheb, A-H-E-B, for those who are dutifully writing it down, Aheb, and its noun, Ahaba, A-H-A-B-A-H, Ahaba, Aheb and Ahaba. Now, this has a really interesting, this word has a really interesting origin. Have you ever been to a Mediterranean grill? Most of you have been to a Mediterranean grill. Have you ever had a kebab? Many of you have had kebabs. Well, the word kebab comes from the Arabic kebab, K-E-B-A-B, spelled a little differently than ours, but kebab. And it comes, it's from the Arabic kebab, and it means (laughs) to burn or to set on fire. Whoever fixed that one cooks kebabs like I cook kebabs, you know? No, I have to let, I have to let it sit on the grill till the flames get to eight and a half inches and then they're done, you know? You measure not the length of time it's been on there, but by how high the flames are getting, right? 
to set on fire is, is a kebab. Kebab comes from the same word root as ahabab. To love is to be set on fire. It is to burn with passion. Ahab and Ahabah, they cover pretty much the same breadth of meaning that the English word love does. Some examples. Abraham, we read, loves his son Isaac. Jacob prepares savory meat for his father Isaac such as he loved. So you can love food. You can love your son. Jacob loves Rachel more than her sister Leah. David loves his best buddy Jonathan. Incestuous Amnon loves his sister Tamar. You can love the Lord. You can love the law. You can love your neighbor as yourself. You can, or you can love transgression. You can love wine. You can love pleasure. All of that appears in the Old Testament in different places. It's all the same word, the same root. Now, God can burn with passion as well. God can love in this way as well. The righteous God, we're told, loves righteousness. He loves his people Israel. God promises his people that just as he freely chose them in love, he will passionately love them as they in turn love and obey his word. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for those following along, Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 7, it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. Then if we jump down to verse 12, if you heed these ordinances by diligently observing them, the Lord your God will maintain with you covenant loyalty that he swore to your ancestors. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. You see, God burns with love for his people. You, for example, passionately, even when you do not heed his ordinances nor diligently observe them, even though you forget and at times disdain his love, even though you sometimes have to suffer the destructive consequences of your own poor choices, the Lord cannot and will not let go of you. He's on fire. In his righteous judgment, God has to send the Babylonians to smash Israel, but then he sends Jeremiah to prophesy over the smoking ruins of Jerusalem to say, from chapter 31 in Jeremiah, I have loved you 
with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. I have loved you with an everlasting love that even the sin of Israel and the sin of its leaders and the sin of its people cannot erase. And that's Acheb. Achabah. God burns with passion. God loves you intensely. God burns with passion over his people, over you, over me, over this church. He's the God kebab. Saying that, though, Achab and Achabah don't entirely capture the essence of God's heart. They're good as far as it goes, but like our English word love, it's too vague. It says everything and it says nothing. Human achaba is meteoric. It's fickle. On again, off again. In distinction to this, to communicate the depth and the constancy of God's passion, for that they needed a different word, a new word. So they chose chesed. For those writing it down, that's H with a little dot underneath it. H-E-S-E-D. H-E-S-E-D. You'll also see it for those that don't, that haven't figured out how to put a little dot under it, you'll see it C-H-E-S-E-D, same word, chesed. It occurs in the Old Testament just over 200 times. And like the ones we've just looked at, like holiness, kodesh, and glory, kabod, there is no real English equivalent. We have to come up with something. Also, by the way, like Kodesh and Kabod, Chesed is used almost exclusively of God. Ultimately, only God has Chesed. Now we think chesed originally derived from a root word meaning eagerness or zeal, getting excited about something. God is zealous for his people. It came to mean generally mercy and kindness, but with the very specific characteristic of steadfast firmness, of determination, of loyalty, of dependability and trustworthiness. You can rely upon it. It will bear your weight. Now the Bible, as I said, generally avoids chesed to describe human love maybe a half dozen times because you see we are not steadfast. 
Only the holy God, who is utterly different from this fickle world, the God who remains the same yesterday and today and tomorrow and forever, only he can be, by his very nature, consistent, steadfast, and dependable. So therefore, only his love can be entirely trustworthy and constant. It makes sense. As God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain, he declares his nature, his forgiving chesed. Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. And we'll read verse 6 and 7. Just background. <coughs> background, the Lord, verse 5, the Lord descended in the clouds, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed the name the Lord. And then, verse 6, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. So we just read this passage in Exodus. This was a, a kind of a creed, a creed, in Israel, it would be learned by heart and it was recited at religious gatherings. It still is, by the way. Um, we find it repeated, for example, verbatim in the book of Numbers in chapter 14. And we find bits and pieces of it quoted all over the place in the Old Testament. Like Psalm 103 and Psalm 145. Both celebrate, and I'm quoting, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, they are quoting this verbatim. Nehemiah looks back in gratitude how God did not forsake his people because, I, let me read it, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nehemiah 9. Or Jonah Jonah really wants those disgusting Gentiles in the city of Nineveh to go up in flames. He doesn't want God to save them. He'd rather not. So he complains to God that the whole reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place and had that whole unfortunate fish incident is he said, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishment. Rats. I added the rats, but you can, you can tell that's what he's saying. Jonah resents God's mercifulness and his steadfast love that he is willing to let those horrible pagans off the hook same time, 
Joel is thrilled. He says, he urges the people, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishment. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. That's Joel chapter 2. Wherever you read in the Old Testament, and if you're reading King James, it will say the loving kindness as pretty much one word, loving kindness. If you're reading any of the other translations, it will tend to say steadfast love, that is chesed. And we see that this, these words from uh, Exodus that we read in Exodus 34 are, are a creed, an ancient creed, that goes to the very heart of the Hebrew faith, and it goes to the very heart and nature of of God, his chesed, abounding in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Now, God's chesed is not just a passing emotion. It's constant and dependable. It's not conditional, as if you can be loved only as long as you are lovable. That wouldn't last very long or if you're obedient, or faithful, or whatever. God remains patient. He's not quick-tempered. He'd rather forgive than bear his anger. And his faithful love will not remain angry. He'll not punish indefinitely. He'll, he will not make a full end of the one he loves. God's God is loving in his very nature. It infuses everything he does. We have seen how in his holiness, God is radically different from and other than this world. And accordingly, his love is completely unlike earthly love. He's steadfast. He is loyal in a fickle and treacherous world. Now, on the other hand, God's very glory, his imminent presence in the world, why would the transcendent God even want to break into this world and be imminent here among us? Why? Because he loves, and his love is steadfast. He chooses to be known and reveal himself. He chooses to, to be known to you and to create a divine human relationship because he loves. God's transcendence and his imminence, his holiness above and his glory upon the earth are connected by his steadfast love. Now, as the scriptures and the faith passed from a Hebrew thought world into a Greek one, people of faith had to rethink their vocabulary. Just when they thought they had it down, they moved into another language sphere and said, ah, we've got to find some more words here. The Greek language also has four words that mean love. Eros corresponds to the Hebrew dod, and it encompasses romantic love and, well, erotic desire. 
That's where it comes, our word comes from. Eros, interestingly though, does not appear anywhere in the New Testament at all. Next, there is storge, storge, which is family loyalty. It's the love of a parent for a child, a child for his or her siblings. Now, interestingly, despite all the noise about Christian family values, storge does not show up in the New Testament either. You wouldn't expect that. The third one is philos, brotherly love. It's the affection one feels for one's fellow man. Uh, the bond between a teacher and a pupil. Uh, it's friendship. The noun philos appears 29 times, and the verb phileo, to love, another 23 times in the New Testament where it describes things like, oh, the love of, of a disciple for his teacher, a child for parents, the loved ones in one's household. And then there is agape. Agape. A-G-A-P-E. Not to be confused with the English word agape. Agape appears, the noun appears some 116 times in the New Testament. And the verb agapao shows up another 107 times. As you can tell, it's an important word. It meant, well, preachers regularly go on and on about how the, to the Greeks, Agape was the highest and most important kind of love, namely divine love. I've heard those sermons too when I was growing up. The only problem is that's not true. Oops. Not in Greek culture at least. Plato, the philosopher Plato, thought that philos was the highest love, the love between a teacher and a pupil, that special bond, was the highest and richest love of all. The Greek mystery religions, they likened one's mystical union to the gods with a heady sexual climax, meaning eros was the greatest love for them. Now, agape, however was a fairly rare and colorless, even to some extent a distasteful word. Greeks usually would avoid agape because it smacked of favoritism. Favoritism. And any of you who felt that mama loved your brother or your sister more than you, you can relate to that. When Greek-speaking Christians, however, wanted to express the extravagant and steadfast love of God, his chesed, they took a, a little used and neglected word 
They redefined it and elevated it to a whole new level. The wonders of God's agape love. It was a Christian invention. That's why it expresses it so well. So the New Testament did not begin with an, from a common and accepted definition of agape. They gave it its meaning and its content through what God had done to display his love. Turn with me to Paul's letter to Romans. Yes, we are drawing near the end. Thank you for being patient. Romans chapter 5. I've touched on this verse before. Romans 5, we'll start at verse 1. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love, agape, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's agape love is the same as his steadfast chesed love. When you and I were still enemies of God, in full rebellion against his authority over our lives, utterly undeserving of any consideration at all, God the Father, nevertheless, purely out of his free choice, out of his favoritism, if you will, loved you with a stubborn and steadfast love that would not be turned away. In love, he willingly took on human form and humbled himself to an unjust death. The one righteous being dying for the unrighteous who had nothing going for them but the sheer fact that God loved. That's it. God demonstrated his unwavering love in the cross. And then through the ongoing working of the Holy Spirit in our midst and within us, irresistibly draws you to himself and pours that love into your heart. He embeds it into your very being. Now you've been given peace with God through the dying of Jesus, and you know that no matter what might happen to you, no matter the inevitable ups and downs of this life as Paul describes them, you are 
loved. Everything has its reason. Everything will have its higher purpose for your good because you are unwaveringly loved. And you know, because God's love is eternal, you will be too. Only a holy and transcendent God, so different from the passing and temporary nature of this world, can love with such constancy. Only an imminent God of glory, intentionally breaking through and manifesting himself, <coughs> excuse me, manifesting himself to human beings in his full weightiness, can communicate that love. Only a God <clears throat> only a God of burning passion and steadfast love would go to any lengths to save one soul, to save you. No wonder we have to keep inventing names for it. Once you know him, once you have experienced his unswerving love, even 17 words couldn't be enough. Let's pray. How awe-inspiring, Lord, is your love. It's nothing like we call love. We who are so prone to unhealthy love, selfish love, self-destructive love, conditional love, and yet you hold out to us a different model, a different truth, and that truth is part of your very heart. And it's the whole reason we can know you. We love, Lord, only because you loved first. Receive our thanks and our humble appreciation now and forever through Jesus Christ, our loving Savior and Lord. All God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and join in singing to the praise of God. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.